live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. In 1982, a professor of chemistry was peering into his electron microscope when he spotted something that he shouldn't have spotted, at least according to the accepted notions of chemistry of that time. Professor Dan Schechtman was on his sabbatical year at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. What he saw that day was to become known as a quasi-periodic crystal, or quasi-crystal, and it was to shake the foundations of the world of chemistry. It prompted the two-time Nobel winner, Linus Pauling, to say there are no quasi-crystals, just quasi-scientists, calling into question Professor Schechtman's credibility. But this controversial discovery ultimately ended with Professor Schechtman being awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2011. Professor Schechtman is the Philip Tobias Professor of Materials Science at the Technion, Israel Institute of Technology, an associate of the U.S. Department of Energy's Ames Laboratory, and Professor of Materials Science at Iowa State University. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hello, Professor Shechlan. Thank you so much for being here with us. Hi. Could you tell us about what happened on that day in 1982. Yes, it was April 8, 1982, and it was in the afternoon, just after lunch. I was on sabbatical, as you said, at the National Bureau of Standards, NBS. Now it's called NIST, N-I-S-T. Mm-hmm. And uh, that afternoon, I studied a new alloy that I have prepared, one of many alloys that I prepared during that study. And that alloy was of aluminum 25.8% manganese. Why did I study it? Because it was interesting. And the story may come later. I looked at the microscope and I saw something which is very unusual. That unusual thing were uh, crystals within the very thin specimen that were peach black. And when you see a crystal that is pitch black in um, bright field microscopy, it means that that crystal diffracts heavily, that most of the energy goes to the diffraction pattern. I took a picture of that crystal, and then I said, okay, now let's take a picture of the diffraction pattern. This is electron diffraction pattern in the transmission electron Diffraction being the way the light comes off of it? The electrons are scattered by the crystals. This mm-hmm. is crusted in certain directions, this is a diffraction pattern. Mm-hmm. I look at the diffraction pattern and I say, there ain't no such animal. In Hebrew, ain't <laughs> chayakazot. Because that diffraction pattern had tenfold rotation symmetry and no periodicity. Meaning? It means that the distance between the spot was not periodic, not equal distance between the spot as it is in regular crystals. In so regular crystals, the distance between atoms here is periodic, and so is the distance between diffraction spots that are so periodic. So when you were studying throughout the years before that, chemistry and crystals, you were taught all those years there is this rule, right? Correct. Well, uh, and based on my vast experience, I was an experienced electron microscopist, there was no such thing before that I have seen. I mean, it was really, really unique. So I said, well, this can be a result of a defect in the crystal called twins. So I said to myself, well, look for the twins, record them, and forget it, because it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. I looked for the twins for the rest of that afternoon, until the evening. There were no twins there. So I knew from day one that this crystal is unique, It's not a result of twins in periodic crystal. I knew what it was not, but Mm -hmm. what it was took some time to find. And from what I understand, this isn't... uh this isn't something that's that's accepted at the time meaning you you 
This it was understood that things were a certain way, that crystals uh, followed a certain rules, and you had found something that presumably broke these rules. And did that not did that not upset a few people? Well, it didn't break the rules. The rules were there. The rules are there, but it was a different kind of crystal, a different branch of crystallography, mm-hmm. which is later called, which was later called quasi periodic uh, materials. So um, the discovery uh, took time to be clearly understood, and this happened after I returned from my sabbatical at NBS to the Technion, where I met Ilan Blech, who was a professor at the time at the Technion, now he lives in California, and he proposed a model that described how could this crystal be formed. And together, because once you discovered it, it wasn't enough. You, knew, you needed to understand, correct me if I'm mistaken, to explain it. You needed to explain it further. Yeah, to see, to see how this thing could, be, could have been formed. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so together we sent a paper for publication in a journal called Journal of Applied Physics, and it was very quickly rejected. <laughs> on the basis that it would not be interesting for the community of physicists. So I sent it to a different journal called Metallurgical Transactions. Metallurgical Transactions, they accepted it and published it. But they published it eight months later. Slow publication in June of 1985. Meantime, I came back in the summer of 1984 to NBS. I was there every summer since then. And I showed the rejected paper to my colleague who invited me there, John Kahn, an eminent scientist who died, passed away last year. And John said, wow, this is something really interesting. Um, why don't we do something completely different, publish a short publication and send it to a quick publication uh, journal? And we did that. We added one more person, Denis Gratias, a mathematical crystallographer from France. And the four of us, Schertmann, Blech, Gratias, Kahn, sent a paper to you know, Physical Review Letters, and it was published in a few weeks. Is it important in the, the field of academia and research to, to get uh, uh, other people to cooperate with you on a paper? Or is, is it... Well, if I could do it alone, I would have done it alone, but I could ah. not. I needed uh, the help of each and everybody of these uh, people. Mm-hmm. Each one contributed uh, to the publication. Ilan Blech contributed the most mm-hmm. uh, of all these uh, collaborators. No, everybody was essential. So we sent it. It was published very quickly. And when it was published, hell broke loose. Because from all over the world, I started to get telephones, emails. Damn it, this is fantastic. Emails, we, emails, were there emails? <laughs> yeah, 1982, sure, sure. 92? 1984 it was 84. by that time. Okay. Right. It's end of 1984, okay. November of 1984. So people are going crazy. Yeah, and, and, and they repeated my, exp- I explained how I prepared the specimens. People repeated it within a few days, put it in the microscope, and voila. There it is, and everybody received the same results. And what happened from there, there was a growing group of eminent, young, avant-garde scientists who took my discovery and turned it into a science, a thriving, fast-moving science. A branch. Of- yes, yes, a branch of science. And, and the development of the field was amazing, amazing. There were hundreds upon hundreds and thousands of papers published within a short time. It was an amazing and, and very lively community with each community communicated with each other. It was amazing. And this is because people realized it's a rare opportunity and you feel that no one has researched. This is the reason because it's rare. Yeah, it's new. It's mm-hmm. new and therefore exciting. Uh-huh. And what are what were and are the the actual implications of the discovery, like practical? Okay, let's talk about practical applications, but also about what why is it important? Okay. It is important because eventually it created a paradigm shift in crystallography. The International Union of Crystallography, who governs the field, came up with a new definition of a crystal. And that new definition is an amazing definition 
because he defined the crystals via the reciprocal space, via the diffraction pattern. Not the way the atoms are arranged, but how the diffraction pattern looks like. So this was a really amazing uh, paradigm shift. This is the theoretical importance, and this is why I received the Nobel Prize. Practical applications, yes, there are practical applications, but let me elaborate on that. When you find a new set of materials, and there are hundreds of quasi-periodic materials, then you look for their properties. You study their properties, electrical properties, electronic properties, uh, magnetic properties, heat conductivity, mechanical properties, you name it. Many scientists, PhD students, master's students, professors, study their properties. And if they find something interesting, then they look for applications. Then comes the entrepreneurs, look for applications and build something uh, on it. So let me just give you one example of applications based on interesting property. You see, quasi-periodic materials in the form of powders absorb infrared radiation very quickly and heat up very quickly. Why is it useful? When you have a 3D printing machine that builds uh, three-dimensional bodies from plastic, from polymers, then what you do, you mix the uh, powder of the uh, polymer, the, the powder of the plastic, will find a powder of quasi-periodic materials. Then you heat it, HIT, hit the uh, powder with the infrared light, very fine beam of infrared light. When, in, when the beam uh, hits uh, a, uh, a quasi-periodic particle, the particle heats up very, very quickly, melts its surroundings, and you have a bonding. And when you don't want any contact, you just don't have the uh, infrared beam on. So it's on, off, on, off, on, off, and this is a very quick way to produce 3D bodies by mm -hmm. 3D printing. Uh -huh. There's a company that sells, it's a patent, the company that sells this product, and it's very useful. So they patented an effect that is a result of your discovery, basically. That's, that's correct. Which allows 3D printing as we know it, or one of the techniques at least. That's correct. So but this is just one example. Yeah. I don't want to mm -hmm. elaborate on many, but, but it's Fascinating quite, quite useful. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. you uh, received the Nobel Prize in 2011, which is, what, uh, th almost 30 years after you discovered it. Is that a normal amount of time, or is that something that's uh, unique to, to your discovery? Well, um, that's a good question. Some discoveries are awarded the Nobel Prize right away, within a year or two. Mm -hmm. Others take longer. Uh, this is uh, on the long side <laughs> of... Uh, Waiting, although it's not the longest, but but it's it's one of the longer waiting time for the and, and how come? Why was there a, a, like a reason that it took so long? To... Politics involved? No, 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 no. I don't. I never blame uh, the Swedes uh, in politics. No, that's not the case. No, uh, they they look for um, the best discovery uh, in in this case in chemistry to award the prize and every year they found very good people i never you know never objected any of these names everybody is an eminent scientist and that that was fine with me i lived mm -hmm. peacefully without an Nobel prize yeah and you of course won some other several respectable awards but what amazed me to discover i didn't realize it is so rare in chemistry to be the sole laureate Okay. Right. That's correct. It's it's rare. And you're the sole laureate. You're a sole laureate of 2011. Just to clarify. That is correct. Um, it is rare, and it is rare not only in chemistry, in all the Nobel prizes. And um, in fact, when they called me that morning of uh, October five, 2011, to tell me that I received Nobel prize, my First question was, and who is with me? I was really hoping that at least two of my colleagues will join with me. With me. I really hoped so. To share in some of the joy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they said, oh, no, you are the discoverer. You are the only one. Uh -huh. hmm. This is their way of, of giving you extra respect, right, if I interpret it correctly, for the, un the uniqueness mm -hmm. yeah, the, of, of that discovery. But I guess so. 
which is I saw that before you in chemistry 99 there was an Egyptian uh, scientist and then 94 and so every so from 99 to 2011 no soul uh, lower yet so that that impressed me profoundly um, and it's cool I think um, there was this I do want to talk about because there was this uh, I mean I feel like from what I read that there was this kind of groundbreaking field to 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 the discovery that you had or maybe it's just painted that way in the press because the press likes to dramatize things but i i do wonder what it was like to have first of all um linus pauling all of a sudden this this you know well-established chemist to come out and there was this whole you know controversy around it was that just kind of fabricated or was there something there that was you know no it was how real. did it affect you yeah okay uh first of all it was real Linus Pauling was uh, vehemently against quasi-periodicity and against me in person um I met Linus Pauling twice once in a dinner in a conference in the United States when we, we had oh I before or no long before long before oh he died long before the Nobel no, no but before the discovery or after no no after the discovery. okay And uh, we agreed about everything except quasi-periodicity. <laughs> so, and we were really friendly to each other as, as two good scientists are to each other usually. He was a, a gentleman from New York, but he has some Southern uh, manners, and, and I like that. Uh, we did not agree about quasi-periodic uh, materials. And um, this was the first time we met. And in fact, we were just sitting in the corner and everybody in the conference having dinner looked at us to see the fists. There were no fists. <laughs> the knives. No fists. Just smiles and everything was fine. Uh, second time, I came to his home in Palo Alto, California and gave him a lecture. Uh, those days, we, we were using slides, you know, these yeah. square slides. With the noise and the... Yeah, that's correct. So uh, he was just sitting there uh, on a, a very comfortable chair, and I stood there and gave him a lecture one hour for an audience of one. Wow. And at the end of my lecture, uh, he said, uh, Dr. Schechtman, I don't know how you do that. Uh, because he was not an electromicroscopist. He was an X-ray uh, crystallographer and a good one. So I said to him, you know, Professor Pollung, if you ever agree with me, don't keep it a secret. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was that. Um, how did I feel about this? This was a, your second question. Yes. Okay. I can um, tell you that I, I had like three periods during those, these 10 years from 1984 to 1994 At first, it was a little bit embarrassing, because after all, I mean, he was uh, the number one chemist in the United States. He was the father and the godfather of the American Chemical Society. At the time, it probably had 150,000 members. Today, it's larger. And, and all the chemists in the world really admired Lannus Pauling, and rightly so. I mean, he was an eminent chemist. Uh, just to illustrate it, uh, one of my daughters, my older daughter, came home one day uh, after a chemistry a class in high school and said, uh, Daddy, is that Lanus Pauling who objects you? I said, yep. He say, she said, oh, Daddy, he must be right. I said, no, no, <laughs> he's wrong. I'm right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so this is my daughter, I said, because yeah. he was such a famous person. Uh, he was also a very flamboyant speaker. He stood on stages, and uh, he was really uh, great. Um, you know, the difference between Linus Pauling and God is that God doesn't think that he's Linus Pauling. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it's worth mentioning that he resisted it until his last day. That's correct. He never... Okay, so uh, the first period was sort of... Well, I didn't feel very comfortable about it. Although I knew... That I was right, and I had a huge group of supporting people. I was not alone anymore, right? Ooh. Second period, I started to like it. I started to like it because people say, "Hey, what's going on there? Pauling and Schechtman are fighting. What's going on?" You were the underdog. Right. Well, <laughs> the underdog and Pauling and Schechtman. I like this, right? And then in the last period, I, I felt sorry for him. I mean, he, he made fool of himself and. Uh, 
uh, he could not publish anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. His papers were rejected. He complained that he cannot publish anymore on quasi-periodicity. Wow. Mm -hmm. and That's heartbreaking in a way. Yeah, and so, you know, he's, he was an old, eminent scientist, yeah. and I feel sorry for him. It reminds me of the story, uh, what told us yet another material uh, manipulator, Uri Geller. <laughs> we met Uri Geller. So he, he also had, not to compare, had his share of controversy, but he said also that uh, you know, it's, eventually you learn to embrace controversy. And see the the better part of it, yeah. right? So, yeah. but Uri Geller <laughs> uh, is uh, has a simple trick of bending uh, teaspoons. Yes, I can do it just like him, exactly yeah. like him, because I'm a material scientist and I know what makes these spoons bend. I can make we. It's very. It's a so very may, simple maybe trick. maybe you missed your calling. Maybe you should have, you know, been bending spoons on stages. Yeah, but this is this is bluffing. I am real. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, this we asked you, and uh, so we can pass on. Um, let's get back to the day of the discovery, mm -hmm. because okay, when as you saw it, did you realize the weight? of that moment not Did, at all not at all not at all i was it was interesting it was wow but it wasn't a huge wow it was a small wow hey that's interesting what's going on here mm -hmm. nothing nothing dramatic but when it started to develop it grew and grew and grew in front of my eyes then then it was so only in retrospect you were but uh, you know and in, in the documentary beautiful documentary they made uh, the nobelists yes in israeli there's a beautiful scene where you talk about your notebook <clears throat> yes which we cannot demonstrate on the podcast but uh you have the notebook yes. from that uh session yes where you write uh, what do you write there it's I like write, a logging, right? Uh, I wrote, this is the diffraction pattern. The logbook is a series of numbers. Each number is a picture that I took in the electron microscope. And this is plate number. The, uh, images were taken those days in electron microscope on glass plates. Wow. And that plate number that I saw, the black crystals, was number 1724. And then I took a diffraction pattern, number 1725, and I wrote tenfold with three question marks. Very strange. <laughs> Later on, I knew that it was fivefold, not tenfold, but they took different experiments to prove it. And you still have that notebook? Yeah. The Technion. Cool. So the, from what I read, I have very little knowledge in uh, crystallography and chemistry in general. And but, in general. And in general. But, <laughs> but, um, but from what I read, it, these patterns uh, are similar to, to ones that are found in, not in nature, but in, I mean, now we understand that they are in nature, but as from mosaics that we find in certain places around the world. Is there a certain art to it, like to drawing these patterns or to, to, to recognizing these patterns? Or manifesting. Okay, the, you mentioned two things here. Number one, uh, patterns. The Moors uh, from Morocco mm -hmm. and uh, Spain uh, in the Alhambra, you have decorations with tenfold rotation, tenfold rotation symmetry. It came because they were very artistically growing, uh, drawing uh, all kinds of uh, straight and bent lines, and, and one, some of them have uh, tenfold rotation symmetry, they have twofold, fivefold, uh, not two, yeah, they have twofold, threefold, fourfold, sixfold, and tenfold. It came up with the drawings. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, chemistry. As far as uh, natural quasi-crystals, I don't think that they are. That they are art in any way? No, I don't think that they, 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 they were discovered. Uh-huh. Ah, I see. Um, and uh, just another thing that I'm interested in, the role of coincidence in science. Okay. How do you perceive it? Because... Oh, okay. Everything is luck. To illustrate it to you, my young man, 
two nice Jewish boys. You may call us. Right. Um, what were your chances to be born? I can tell you. Zero. <laughs> zero. I mean, there's nothing close to zero than for one person to be born. Right. Your parents had to be born. Their parents, their parents go down to the first amoeba in the swamp. Yes. Right? It's zero. And yet you're here. Right. With you. No less than with you. <laughs> so also each one of us is a miracle. All right. Another sperm, your brother. You would never know that you were not born. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's all luck. And, and so you believe in luck. Luck governs us. You don't have to believe in it. It's, it's all over us. Every step that you make may take you in a different direction. Every step. When, let me give you an example, right? Uh, I had this argument with a scientist, eminent scientist that I liked very much. He died years ago. And he was, uh, his, his, name? Na his name is Martin Blackburn, a wonderful uh, scientist and a gentleman. He was the expert in the United States in titanium alloys. He worked for Boeing for many years. And then we coincided at uh, Wright-Peterson Air Force Base, where I did my postdoc, and he passed by from Boeing to Pratt & Whitney and stayed with me for a year or so. And I talked to him and I said, you know, everything is chance. He said, no, no. Let me tell you, he said, I am an expert in titanium because I did my PhD in titanium. Oh, I said, this is wonderful. And how come you did your PhD in titanium? He looks at me and he said, you know, he looks at me and he said, you know, you're right. I came to my professor and he said, you know, you will do your PhD on magnesium crystals. He opens the door, he looks for magnesium crystals, couldn't find any, he said, oh, you know, I have a titanium crystal. Why didn't you do it on titanium? Because he didn't find it in his door. But why do you think it is luck and not just coincidences? Is it not the same thing? But don't you think perhaps if he would have pull, pulled out the magnesium crystals, then maybe that professor would have been just as successful and just a, and had you know just the same discoveries, but just in a different field? Absolutely, and we would never meet. Ah. We met on titanium because of titanium. Ah. This is why we met. We would never meet. Of course. Of course. So, so luck uh, is a, a very profound part of science, you say, of our lives, our existence, of, of everything. The, of everything. Luck is everything. Right? So how can the scientists live with that notion? What? Isn't it very hard? Very like nothing, like the, for a young scientist, you know, to think that he can wish to discover a discovery worth Nobel Uh, he can wish for that for eternity, but it, it's not dependent on him, you know? It's he does, he does. Well, let me tell you. Luck brings you opportunities. Now you come into the game. What do you do with this opportunity? Then, you, then come your personality, your perseverance, your knowledge, your um, wisdom. You have a role And to play. And persistence. That's right. You have a role to play. But, but the opportunity is brought to you by luck or coincidence, as you call it. But you don't think that the way you approach the opportunity is a product of, meaning your persistence and your personality aren't also just another product of chance? Well, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is uh, your upbringing, it is uh -huh. your physique, it's your... It's many things. And maybe, maybe Jewishness. Well, we'll get to that later. Well, yeah. I, I don't um, so we have some questions from our listeners. Okay. So Orelison or asks, uh, Dear Dan, how, how, how hard was it to keep the fact that you won the Nobel Prize a secret until the committee publicly announced it? Did you scatter clues around for your amusement? Thanks, a fellow crystal lover. <clears throat> Nice question. The, the, the time difference between... <clears throat> Good question. The time difference between they told me, which was 11.15, and the time in the morning, and the time they announced it to the world is half an hour. 
Okay. All right. So I had half an hour for myself. So this is this is what happened during that half hour. <laughs> okay. All right. So after they told me and there's few people talked to me, I tried to get on the internet to see the announcement, but couldn't get online <laughs> because the lines were already saturated. <laughs> so I just sit there at my desk. I left my work. And I'm gazing at the floor in front of me and thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen now? And I imagine different scenarios for the short time, for the same day, the same week, the same year, the future. What's going to happen? I was far away from reality in my imagination. Trancing. 20 minutes later, I said, oh my God, I didn't call my wife. <laughs> That's a death sentence. So <laughs> I pick up the phone. My wife is a professor at the Haifa University. Professor and I said, of? Uh, education. Mm -hmm. I said, Sippy, her name is Sippy. Uh, hi, are you alone? She says, no, I'm with a student. So I say, make her scarce. I need to tell you something. Poof. I said, you know, I got the Nobel Prize in chemistry and they're going to announce it in 10 minutes. Wow, what she does is uh, rushing down to their computer center where they could get online to see the announcement. And then she take a taxi to come to the Technion, from the Haifa University to the Technion. Where you were? Where I am. Haifa is the university. One owns my wife, Technion owns me. <laughs> and um, why did she have to take a taxi? I mean, does she have a car? Of course she has a car, but this morning, um, my car didn't start, so I took her car. So oh. she came with a taxi. <laughs> and at uh, 15 minutes to 12, I know that now they announce it. And I know that I have a few minutes because the explosion occurs. There is silence in my office. There is silence, there is silence, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. And then, wow. I hear roar in the corridor, people rushing in the corridor. My room is the last in the corridor. And my door opens. The mob. Everybody breaks in and Singing. hugging and, and cheering. And, and the, the room was full in, in a couple of seconds. And, and then many things happened that day. Uh, the Technion was ready for this. Uh, no, but for quite a few years, they had everything ready. So they just said to switch it on and the whole thing happens, including um, press conference and uh, a ceremony and all kinds of things. And yep. it changed your life that day? Sorry, again? This, this day changed your life? Oh, absolutely. It did? Oh, How so? dramatically. Dramatically. That, the Nobel Prize? Nobel Prize is a life changer. How? For everybody. Well, then it depends on the personality. Uh, Nobel Prize is, is a license to do whatever you want. You can choose, right? So some people, like my colleagues, you know, we have quite a few Nobel laureates in Israel. My colleagues, uh, some of them decided to continue their studies, get more budget, and so on. I decided to be an educator for the world. I travel a lot. In 2016, last year, I was in 30 countries, gave lectures and had meetings with decision makers, uh, uh, advocating uh, early science education, advocating technological entrepreneurship, advocating uh, chemistry, material science, physics, uh, everywhere. Uh, to many, many thousands of people every time. So this was my decision. It was a, it was a life changer. Did it change you, though? Oh, no, no, no. It did not change me. I remained same, same character. Well, we'll need to double check that with your wife, though. <laughs> you will get the same, uh, and, 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 same answer. And Or Ellison also asks a little, another question. If Linus Pauling were alive today, what would you want say to him uh, or, you, or you said it. I would shake his hand and I said they, uh, it was a fair game but you lost buddy <laughs> <laughs> we have another question from Nir Miretsky 
He says, uh, what do you know about kryptonite? And then he says, but seriously, can you think about any other scientific consensuses that might be challenged or contradicted in the future? Yes. Okay. Uh, challenged, yes. Contradicted, probably no. That means the following. Maybe in some cases also yes. My discovery was an addition to what was known. It didn't say that something was wrong. It was an additional branch of science that was not known before. But it didn't say that something before was wrong. Everything was right. It just was addition. In most cases, this is what happened. But in some cases, we are very surprised to find things. Let me give you examples like my example, an example which is different. Uh, there are two discoveries that were made also in the mid-80s, year after year. I was the first, and then uh, full Lorentz were discovered, and then high-temperature superconductivity was discovered. High-temperature superconductivity is an addition. It didn't say anything about that was something wrong before, but it was an addition. Full Lorentz was an addition. But then in later years, it was discovered, uh, let's talk about astronomy. Surprisingly, it was discovered that the universe is not only expanding, as it was known before, but it was expanding in acceleration. Mm -hmm. And that was something else. It was not an addition, it was... Contradicting to the... Yes, yeah. we, it, was, it was right against what we thought before. But so, isn't that, I mean, how does that contradict? Isn't the, um, from what I understand, and it's probably because I don't understand it well enough, is that it, the universe is just expanding faster. Well, it's expanding faster, but it, it may mean that some people thought that the, uh, the universe will, will expand and then shrink again and expand and shrink again, okay? Ah, okay. But now that it's expanding acceleration... You need to explain that, right? Uh, it's, it's you know, it says no, no, it will not come back. It's, it's going to... Yeah. Mm, it's it's okay. an acceleration. So, so this is something that contradicts previous knowledge. And we have other discoveries that do uh, just the same. So what other cons uh, consensuses you think have a chance to... Oh, it's too hard to... If only we knew. Well, it's very difficult to say. Um, most of the laws of nature that we know are very well established. Uh, here, the most famous example is uh, the theory, theory of relativity, Albert Einstein, okay? So we had Newton, and we had the laws of, that Newton uh, postulated, and they worked very well, and everything was fine. And then, the, and then comes Einstein, and he said, hey guys, everything is fine, but if you move faster and faster and faster, then you will see that the laws are not precise there is something else there, right? So this was, yes, it was an addition, but it really shook a little bit. Practically, in everyday life, it doesn't make any difference. But today, you use GPS without Einstein, without understanding what's going on in high speed, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to have precise GPS. Because? We wouldn't be able to, because we have to take in a, into account the speed of light. Uh-huh. To me, it seems like, uh, and maybe you can verify if this is a correct perspective, but it seems that our perspective expands, that maybe we, we have certain laws when we look at the universe from our perspective, and then as our perspective, as our ability to perceive you know, a wider view, as it expands, then we have a better understanding and a better, and that perception will always go, continue to expand. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely, there will be generations upon generations of bright scientists who will discover new things. Mankind will never understand totally everything. We will never understand everything. There is work for scientists for thousands upon thousands of years to come. That's Good comforting. Luck, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to ask you, Professor Schechman, because I read, it's, I find it incredible that 
from 881 Nobel Prize laureates, 196 uh, were won by Jews. Uh, so more than 20% of the prizes were won by Jews, although they are less than 0.02% of the world's population's population. How do you explain that? <laughs> do I have As to a explain Jew. it? Well, let's say a few things. Um, number one, uh, people in Israel say that, uh, wow, look at the number of Nobel laureates that we have in Israel. I'm not, I'm not impressed at all, because let's say that the number of Jews in Israel equals the number of Jews in the diaspora, all right? You know how many Jews receive the Nobel Prize in the diaspora? Huge number, okay? Mm -hmm. So in Israel, 15 times more than the number of uh, Nobel laureates in Israel. So for a Jew to live in diaspora has a better chance, much better chance to receive the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Maybe because the laboratories are more elaborate, maybe because... Uh, or the music studios, in Dylan's case. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. So this is one thing. Um, I don't know. Is the Jewish education system, brain, um, it's very difficult to say, but, but it's and in your, So in your case then, did your roots... In my your... case, uh, I can tell you that, that the following. I was not the best student in the class. I was above average, far from the best. But I was the most curious student and I had a broad knowledge, more than everybody else, about science. I knew everything about science. Why so? Because when I was very young, my parents and grandparents bought me every encyclopedia existed in Hebrew. So you're the kid that read them all. So I, right, <laughs> I knew everything that was in the six not everything was right by the way <laughs> but but i knew everything there i knew about nature when i was seven years old my grandfather bought me a present it was a magnifying glass and i walked in nature those days cities were surrounded by fields i mean it, nature was all around us not like now and I was studying, looking at everything small and, and I, with a magnifying eye. And I fell in love with the world of small things. And that love for small things brought me later on to microscopy, optical microscopy, electron microscopy, and I became an expert in microscopy. I can tell you as an anecdote that uh, my little son, I have four children and 12 grandchildren and one wife. My uh, youngest son is a physicist. He just uh, finished his uh, postdoc in Stanford. He is now a professor at the Technion, and he is a microscopist also. Hmm. And, and how did it start? It start? First of all, it started because he's, he's very bright. Uh, and he, he needs to understand everything very clearly. And let me illustrate it to you. I think it's important. When he was five years old, I talked to him about something in science. I always did that. He stands up, he looks at me, and he says, that cannot be. It cannot be. I was so happy. Wow, this was amazing. I said, okay, let me explain you something that you don't know, and you will see that it can be. I explained to him. He thinks. He said, yes, that can be. All right? questioning everything is Jewish, is in my family. I was the same person. I always questions, why do you say so? Why is it so? How do things work? Nowadays, when I recommend somebody, somebody who is interested in teaching the, the most uh, talented children, I tell him, don't choose only the one with the, with the good grades. That is not necessarily what you want. You want those with bright eyes, those people with curiosity. You want the people who ask questions, good questions. These are the future scientists, not necessarily the one with the best grades. Right. And where does this passion for education come? Because you spoke about the initiatives that you took after 
you won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And you're a professor. A lot of the times in academia, I've, I mean, I feel that uh, many professors are more interested in doing research than teaching. The kind of, you know, teaching is a burden for them. That's correct. And it's also for me. But I was, I was the best teacher mm-hmm. at the Technion, a best, one of the best teachers at the Technion, year after year. And I won... Chosen uh, by the students. You... Chosen by the yeah. students. That's correct. The students really liked me. Um, and my teaching and they remember what I taught them for the rest of their life why so because when I do a job I want to do a good job and I prepared my lectures in such a way that it would be very practical for them and they will understand what I'm talking about when I talk to people I want them to understand what I'm saying I don't talk vague words they have to understand I realized very early that it's all about education. The future of Israel depends on good education. It depends on more people that will be engineers and scientists. We need more engineers and scientists. And it just so happens that uh, new generations don't necessarily want to be engineers and scientists. They want to be because it's difficult, it's difficult. They don't know what they want to be. <laughs> they don't they want to know. be famous. That's right. They, they wait for an advice, young people. Although they rebel, they still wait. They, they are still expecting uh, uh, advice. I can tell you about myself. I expected my father to direct me. I asked him about what to study when I uh, finished my military service in Israel. Those days it was two and a half years, now it's more than that. He said to me something that sounded good, but I didn't like it. He said, you do whatever you want, I will support you. Sounds great, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, is not, this is not what I wanted. I wanted advice. Right? So I decided to study engineering finally, and uh, because my dream in life was to become an engineer, I, I became a scientist by uh, by coincidence. There's when that I was luck young, again. When I was that's luck <laughs> again, uh, and uh, there's a moral to the story, and I'll tell you what the moral is after I finish the story. Um, when I was young, I was uh, I reading many books. I read very many books. Every book that was translated to Hebrew. I, I was I read and um, one of the books that I like most the book that I like most was a book by Jules Verne called Mystery Island and in that book uh, there is a hero and the hero is an engineer and he could do everything he could make everything I wanted to be like him and uh, so I really wanted to become an engineer and I studied mechanical engineering at the Technion. And uh, then I was I graduated in 1966. I was the happiest person in the world. Certified, technical graduate, mechanical engineer. Wow. Let's go to the island and build stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I couldn't find a job because 1966, there was a big uh, recession in Israel. Oh, really? I could not find a job. So I said, well, um, maybe I should do my master's degree, uh, get some, be a TA, teaching assistant, get some salary. I had the family to support by that time. And in two years, I will find a job. But during these two years, I fell in love with science and decided to continue my PhD. And that sealed my fate. So the moral? <laughs> the moral? Okay. The moral is, okay, there was a recession. I couldn't find a job. Is it good or bad? Sounds bad, right? I didn't find a job. Bad? No, it's not so bad. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. It's good and bad. So when things happen to you in life, don't think that everything that looks bad is really bad. Yes. All right? And in yet... Hebrew, in Hebrew, we have a saying, I don't know how you would translate this to English, Kola kavala tova. Every... Uh, Every misstep, every... Every delay is for the best. Yeah. Every delay for the best. That's correct. Every delay. Okay. Oh, I left something at home. I have to get back from the car home. Is it bad or good? Well, if, you if, meet if the I love didn't of your forget life. it, I'll be in, it in the car accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. Or you and meet here. the love of your life and the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know. And yet, you fear, correct me if I'm wrong, for the future 
of this country in regards to science, to the future generation and his in, its interest in science. You are working hard to change the the way this ship goes, right? That's correct. It's a it's a very big ship and it's very difficult to steer. Why are you why are you so pessimistic? Because education is everything. Everything depends on education. And, and we started to talk before about engineers and scientists. We need more of them. And my theory is that we should teach science to very young children. What is young? Kindergarten. Five. Five years old. Teach science to five years old kids. They are very bright. They are not retarded adults. They are very bright. You can teach science to young children and you should teach science and make them love science. Once they like I want a young child to say, I like science because I understand it. I'm good at that. Mm-hmm. And science is cool. Science is cool. That's great. This is what, science is wonderful. It's exciting. It's great. So this is why I started a couple of programs to teach science to young children. A TV show? Uh, I had a TV show to, that is called Hiot Madan in Professor Dan, means to be a scientist with Professor Dan. And uh, I started a program in Haifa uh, to teach science to kindergarten children. It is spreading, but not quick enough. I hope that it will spread all over the country. And so e- education is the future of science, but you think also science is the future in general, meaning science is integral. Science and engineering shape the face of a nation. What? No cinema? What about cinema studies? Okay. <laughs> I am for music. Yeah. I am for cinema. I am for arts. These give taste to life. But engineer and scientists give life. To a nation. Mm-hmm. Well, on, that, on note, that note, <laughs> yeah. Before I, I go to, for my MA in physics, um, Professor Schachtman, it was an honor. You are an incredible person, and it was delightful. And we thank you. And thank before you we go, we have two amazing corporations. One with the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. It's a big. A Jewish news uh, newspaper and uh, and a website a pretty cool website they have so check it out and also secret Tel Aviv which is a Facebook group of 150,000 people old Lim who who live in Tel Aviv who are interested in life in Tel Aviv and and uh, it's a great source of information about life here for English speakers so and we have a website www.2njb.com and And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitter or Facebook. Two nice Jewish boys. And uh, we also uh, are on iTunes. Just go to, uh, to the, um, how do you call it? The, the iTunes store. The iTunes, yeah. And search for us. Yeah, right? exactly. No, it's not called the iTunes store, but never mind. It's called uh, whatever. Yeah, just, you know, Apple, Apple, store. Uh, Apple store. You know what to do. iTunes, iTunes. Go to yeah. iTunes and search for Two Nice Jewish Boys. And we're also on the Jewish Journal. And you can find us anywhere, basically. Um, thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. Pleasure. And, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. My pleasure.